this is why I think it's so important for us to talk about it. David Linden, he is a professor of neuroscience at John Hopkins School of Medicine, says, as adults, touch is social glue. It binds people in the workplace into effective teams. There was a research study done, and I want to say it was with NBA teams at the first part of the season, and sort of all of the sort of the guys do sort of smacking one another on the backside, you know, bumping arms, like hugging, like after good plays. And they wanted to see if there was any implications of how they played in the second half of the season. And ironically, they did better. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. If you have specific questions or concerns, we encourage you to consult a health professional in your local area. From Changelog Media, this is Brain Science, a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and what it means to be human. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to transform our lives? I'm Adam Stachowiak. And I'm Dr. Marielle Reese. Adam, do you know what our largest organ is? I believe it's my heart because I've got a big heart. <laughs> Good thinking. But I'm wrong. No, I know you I'm know. Wrong. I know I'm wrong. It is because it's what? It's our skin. Our skin. You are correct. So I'm excited about today's conversation because, you know, we are all familiar with the senses, see, smell, touch, taste, and hear. And I want to focus our attention on the notion of touch or the sense of touch. Some would say to feel is to be human. And ironically, to touch is to feel. Yes. Interesting. It's a, well, we, if we think about connection too and attachment and all these things, like imagine if you never was touched as a baby or you never touched your baby or you never embraced your father or mother or aunts or uncles or whatever, mm-hmm. how deeply would you attach to them? How deeply would you care for them? Probably a lot less because we're going to examine what touch does, but attachment and emotion is a huge component of touch. Yeah. Yeah. You're spot on. We've talked about this in other episodes, but you are alluding to the research that I've talked about before relative to children in orphanages in Romania that wherein these infants had significant developmental delays and challenges if they were deprived of touch, which is what contributed to changes in how we care for infants. Because what they found is that when children, when infants were not touched during this time period, they developed, kids developed poor emotional control or coping. They had gastrointestinal problems, impaired cognitive development. Like there was a number of sequelae related to just not being touched and that ironically then they brought in volunteers to come in and practice you know holding and touching and caressing in you know very adaptive ways it totally changed the developmental trajectory of these kids so long as these interventions were incorporated prior to the age of two Mm. it's it's a two-way street though too the studies on the orphans but 
Uh, I'm thinking of the people who held these children. You know, it's a two-way street, really, right? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I talk about volunteering or sort of doing acts of service when I work with people in mental health of going, what could you do? I, so I've heard, I haven't looked into it, but there's like an extensive waiting list to go and hold the babies in the like NICU. Absolutely. That's what I was thinking of was like, there's these volunteers who, uh, now I actually saw this in a show and it, it, the show is called Dead to Me. It's, I think it's on Netflix. So if you've seen that show in, in the, I'm not going to give any plot twists or spoilers here, but in season two, one of the women goes to the hospital and for some reason she's watching this other woman you know, love on this baby. And she's like, Oh, I love your baby. And she's like, Oh, that's not my baby. I'm, I volunteer as a, as a, a baby holder or whatever the term for it was, but essentially sure. there's a volunteer team who volunteers to come and love these babies and they'll just hold the baby for a little bit, give them love. And there's a, there's a give and take though. The baby receives and so does the person. Mm-hmm. Yep. So this is why I think it's so important for us to talk about it because you're saying it's not just the kids, but adults too. And so David Linden, who's a, um, he is a professor of neuroscience at John Hopkins School of Medicine says, as adults, touch is social glue. It binds people in the workplace into effective teams. Crazy, huh? Touch can be metaphorical too, right? Is the touch in this case to some degree metaphorical? No. When it comes to teams? No, like, I mean, even in teams, so we can talk like there was a research study done, and I want to say it was with NBA teams at the first part of the season, and sort of all of the sort of, you know, the guys do sort of smacking one another on the backside, you know, bumping arms, like hugging, like after good plays, and they wanted to see if there was any implications of how they played in the second half of the season, and ironically, they did better. Mm. So I'm, we're in this, I'm literally talking touch. Okay. Like there is, so it doesn't have to be like intimate partner touching, romantic touching, but like literally touching. So, you know, some people might say, you know, uh, touch on the so- shoulder. So like safe touching, generally speaking, wherein you, you know, have more latitude would basically be from the shoulder to the hand. Right. Right. So think of somebody who, you know, you have rapport with, you've worked with for some time, you know, who you find out they just lost someone they love, that you might be apt to touch them on the shoulder and be like, I am so sorry to hear that, that it's, you know, and this is why when we talk about touch, we're going to talk about emotions because it also helps convey empathy and emotional understanding. Right. The interesting thing, too, I think, is that when we're younger, we get touched a lot by our parents. We touch our parents a lot. And so as we age, somehow, you know, obviously sexuality comes into play and intimacy comes into play with touch. And so as we get older and become more mature, touch becomes more purposeful, less frequent for the obvious reasons. But I think the thing is just to sort of like reframe how we think about touch and how it impacts us in our life. Whereas like yes. my example of a scenario like this that you just gave is with my son. When my son is super upset or he's frantic for some reason or he can't get his words out and he's just upset, I give him a big hug. And he sort of like inhales, exhales, and just calms down in my arms. Same with my wife, you know, calms down in my arms because there's something that happens, you know, metabolically with the touch and the process of touch. Yeah. 
But yep. you're not always a kid and not, not always a parent. So you're a team member on a professional team, basketball, sure, a software team, an engineering team at a high profile company, you know, an individual that's a remote worker. Like where does touch come into play in these scenarios that makes sense? So do you have rules of engagement in a business, for example, like when we can touch, it's in these ways that are appropriate. Like how do you, I suppose, prescribe touch to teams, you know? <laughs> Well, sure. So like with anything, of course, there's guardrails and there's parameters. And really, I would say that there is personal preference and that two people participate in what they allow or feel comfortable with. You know, it's interesting because someone said there. the fact is that there is a cultural variation in comfort with touch, which shows that Ironically, how comfortable we are in one thing or another is predominantly learned. It's not something that's inherent or innate, like you're born with it and says, this is okay and this is not. I mean, think about it like tickling, right? Like I would, I would suspect that people have different preferences and sort of levels of acceptability as it relates to tickling mm-hmm. and going, I'm okay with being tickled or like, no, dear God, like <laughs> I do not like it. By anyone, <laughs> not even like <laughs> right. my boss, but like uh, anyone, you know, so you may have specific preferences like that. There's this thing that happens at tech conferences that uh, I'll bring up that is slightly interesting in the fact that it sort of identifies publicly uh, in a silent manner. Like I don't have to walk around saying I have these certain preferences. I can wear a certain badge or a certain color on the badge given to me based upon my preferences conveyed to the conference organizers and it lets the photographers know I'm okay with being photographed or uh, I'm, you know, I prefer these pronouns or whatever it might be. So there's these sort of personal preferences you can put out there. And maybe in a mm-hmm. work environment, there's some sort of rules of engagement like, okay, we understand that touch is important and that team-based touching has better impl- implications to, you know, deeper attachment, you know, greater empathy, whatever the, the things might be. But these are my limits, or I'm okay with handshakes only. I'm a handshake only person, happy to handshake as part of our team touching or a high five, you know, or I'm okay with pats on the back. Maybe that gets too weird. I don't know. I don't have specifics into that. So what do you think? Well, I think that because the way in which we're we're talking about this, we we're getting at the way in which there's an emotional component to it. And so I don't even know that you can say that there's generalities. I mean, even on a team, you still have individual relationships and go, I might be more comfortable with one person because I feel safer in some way with them or less vulnerable. Like say, for example, you have a coworker who, you know, despite your your efforts at communicating clearly of saying, hey, you know, when you come up to my desk, like come alongside or, or sort of let me know, like it bothers me because I feel startled every, every time you come up behind me. And they don't take that feedback and they continue to not do anything different. So that isn't going to foster a sense of trust, right? Because they're not incorporating the feedback you're giving them, which then in turn will likely make them feel less comfortable, which could, not to say it would, but could make them say like, I don't want this person to touch me because I don't feel as if they're safe or respectful, Mm -hmm. right? So they're not going to, you know, manage sort of, themselves differently that would then in turn manage our relationship differently. So it's easy to hit that touch is very personal. It is. And, and yeah, very love- touchy to use a pun <laughs> when 
when it comes to talking about it because there are some people who have been touched inappropriate in their life and they yes. feel certain ways because of it or uncomfortably with a coworker or anybody. And that's okay. Yes. And yes. But I think what we're trying to do is help people understand what touch is to being human, how it affects our brains, how it affects our relationships, the roles it plays, and how to, you know, reframe our thoughts on it around healthy ways of touching and the ways it does really help interpersonal relationship between, you know, partners, you know, father and son, mother and daughter, coworkers, like in any walk of life, how touch can play a role in helping you be more human. Right. I, I love this quote by David Eagleman. Eagleman. He says, you can't touch something without being touched yourself. Yeah. You know, and even as we're we're thinking about this, I, I I have the image always of like, you know, my hand is the thing doing the touching. <laughs> but I can touch things with my elbows. I mean, I think about, you know, one time when I was in New York City and like people would walk by and touch my arms in the middle of the, you know, scorching heat, <laughs> which I was not preferable to. Right. But so it doesn't just mean with our hands, it can be feet and different, you know, body parts, et cetera. But that's part of what's interesting in it phenomenologically is that there are two pathways in our brain for how we process touch. Did you know that? No. Yeah. So there's this sensory pathway, which gives us facts about the touch, like the pressure, location, or the fine texture. And then that second pathway processes the social and emotional information, determining more of the emotional content of the interpersonal touch. Interesting. So, for example, walking, you know, in New York where it's highly dense, right, and that people bump into each other as just a sort of way of life, you know, I'm not processing that as a personal attack or like the person was trying to 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 touch me. So my response is likely very different, you know, as I just was aware of the facts, like they I felt the pressure and the location of it and the the fine texture of a little bit of slime. Mm -hmm. Slime. <laughs> Sweat slime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, this, right? That exchange that happens, you're like, that's kind of icky. So you may be uncomfortable with it, but it's not like an advance of some sort. Sure. And so that then affects my response. And this is why I think it's so helpful to have conversations around these topics because – you know, when we know or understand more of what's going on internally, it allows us to make a different sort of interpretation or understanding of the way in which what's going on on the inside is affected by things on the outside, including both people and experiences, so that I have an opportunity to examine it and potentially respond differently. I don't know this is a perfect example, but I think like a dark room. To, to know where you're at in a dark room and you can't see anything, what might you do? You'd probably reach out your hand. Sure. Begin to feel around, right? The right. sense of touch is sort of like your eyeballs in some cases when it comes to or the, the ability to see. And like even with, say, Braille, for example, and mentioning how there's two different pathways of understanding sensory and, uh, and then emotion – you know, you don't read Braille with your elbow. You might read it with your fingers or your lips potentially, not your calf muscle or your right. elbow. You right. know, so there's specifics around this, but it's it's kind of an exploratory thing even. Right. You know, there's it's a multifaceted uh, sensory that we have. 
Yeah. So I think I've shared this before, but remember when I've talked through that experience of VR, wherein I went up the elevator and I had the opportunity to walk off a beautiful little wooden plank? Right. Yes. <laughs> and the way in which I navigated it, because the information, the one sense was telling me, well, two, what I could see and what I could hear was alternative to other things that I knew. And so I actually got down on the floor and like touched the floor beside the plank to remind myself that there was other, there was still ground. I literally wasn't going to wow. step off into the abyss and fall down to, you know, my death. One layer deeper to that then, how did it feel to see and hear something different than what you touched? Because when you touched the floor, it didn't feel like a plank in water or empty space. It was sure it was carpet. carpet or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was carpet. Yeah. So how, how, how did that, how did your, how did you react to the fact that you see something different than you feel? This is so interesting. So it, it calmed me down because I was sort of like, going on with it, like, do, 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 like it was pleasant. I wasn't necessarily anxious, but when the doors opened and I saw the mountains and the skyscrapers and the birds, <laughs> right, my brain started to tell me a different story. And so that's when I, I got down and was like, okay, well, first I think I tried to walk a couple of steps and I'm like, really, Oof. really? <laughs> yeah. So this is why it's super important in recognizing how we process. So that first part, which tells us about the pressure, location, and texture, this is the first place or first region of the brain that gets hit by our sensation of touch. And that is called the primary somatosensory cortex. Say that 10 times fast. Somatosensory cortex. Okay. So Dr. Linden, remember the doctor I've mentioned, who is a professor of neuroscience at John Hopkins, says that it basically analyzed information through a series of processing stages that extract more and more complicated information. It's about figuring out the facts, and it uses sequential stages of processing to gradually build up tactile images and perform the recognition of objects. So that's how, I mean, I know what carpet feels like. I'm having the experience and that's like, I can feel the hardness of the floor beneath it as well. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel like wood, like my visual system told me. Even so though, I think it's, you know, to pause there to, to think like, okay, my brain has an association, not just with the notion of carpet, right? Or colors of carpet or how it visually looks. But I also have this notion of the framework of knowing that if I touch this, this feels like carpet. So there's a multi-sensory, you know, object-oriented sort of like graph happening in my brain when it comes to memory and association, right? Yeah. There might even be a certain smell associated with carpet, which there is. Right. You know, I'm not sure you can probably, you can probably hear carpet by rubbing your feet on it or something like that or, you know, wiping your hand around. So there's mm -hmm. a, a multi-sensory attachment or designation to an object. Or objects of the world. Yeah. So I'm going to dig a little deeper then to sort of talk through that grid or map that you're referencing as it relates to the brain. So if you can imagine, right, like we sensations come from the outside in. I, I sense. Okay. And the signal is from the touch receptors in my skin, which my fingertips happen to have a lot of little receptors. <laughs> so they're dense. Okay. And so those little signals or, you know, travel along the sensory nerves that connect to neurons in my spinal cord. 
Okay, so then it pulls up through the thalamus, which relays information to the rest of the brain, which would then be that somatosensory cortex, okay, which is where your brain goes, oh, this is a touch perception. This is what is going on. So imagine that that this part of your brain is sort of like where you're wearing, where you would wear headphones or a headband. That's mm-hmm. sort of the part of the brain that's the somatosensory aspect. And so sensitive areas like our lips and fingertips stimulate much larger regions of the cortex than less sensitive parts like, say, your back. So it depends on the number of receptors per unit area and the distance between them. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, it's crazy how, uh, how deep this goes, even down to like the, the memory graph of objects to mm-hmm. you know, registering emotion or the amount of receptors to convey back to my somatosensory cortex, et cetera. <laughs> you know, what kind of touch this is? Mm-hmm. Is it an infraction on my personal beliefs? All this happens so quickly. It does. It does. And like, this is why it's so crazy. So how neurologists look at this, the sort of sensitivity we have is looking at the minimum distance between the two points on somebody's skin where a person can identify different distinct stimuli as opposed to just one. So like Mm. if I move something on one part of my fingertip as opposed to another part, I'm still probably going to feel it on my fingertip as opposed to, you know, my back where I could go further way and have a different experience because I could feel, you know, two parts as opposed to one. Who would have known or thought that touch could be so dynamic? I mean, I guess it would make sense, but like digging into it, the science of it, mm-hmm. it to me is is what really keeps me curious because it's it's really no end to how you can, you know, see touch playing a role and the way it, it can be used for pain management, it can be used for building relationship, it could be used for being offended, it could be, you know, there's so many, it could be used for seeing your way around a dark room. Right. You know, it's really, really interesting how much touch plays a role in our lives. And I think that's what's really interesting to me is like to open that door up and, and examine and explore just how this thing we may take for granted is to us. Yeah. And so that's only like step one, like we only got to the first stop for the train. Okay. <laughs> Let's go to the next stop. So the second pathway processes, right, the social and emotional information, interpreting or determining more of the emotional content of the touch. So that pathway activates brain regions associated with social bonding, pleasure, and pain, which is the posterior insula. See, this is why, like, when people are like, oh, it's just this one thing in your brain, like, it's never, ever, ever that simple. So the touch we have, you know, interpersonal touch, especially that light caress, sends signals to the posterior insula, which produces that soft, pleasant sensation, which is why, you know, even in sort of intimate relationships, you can touch someone and say, I don't, I don't like it when you touch like that, or that's too hard, that's too soft. Like people have preferences and it influences or impacts how you figure how they out. Feel. Yeah, yeah. Social bonding. Social bonding is is interesting, especially around touch. I mean, going back to the MBA and that study, I think that's so interesting how they can examine the, you know, the congratulatory behaviors and the many ways that teammates touch one another to do that, whether it's a slap on the butt, a slap on the back, a high five, a gigantic hug, a team pile on, you know, all these things to 
I would imagine it is one the aspect of touching, but it's it's two is like I'm with you, like on yeah. the same team, we're together in the same emotion. Right. So it's a multifaceted sort of thing, not just simply the touch, but to have that as an examination of whether or not they play better in the second half of the game or the season right. is really interesting because what would happen if that team didn't ever touch? They yeah. They play, play pretty poorly. They would have, you know, not deep and well-connected personal relationships. And to me, that's a, an interesting fact about the teams we play on, you know, in terms of professionally. Sure. Or even interpersonally, like your team is your home team. Like my team is my wife and my kids. Yeah. Right? Your team is your husband and your kids. And but professionally, we have other teams. And how does that play a role? I know I'm going to get sort of giddy as I like talk about research because it just like blows my mind. And I like a kid in a candy store. So there is a researcher, um, psychologist Matthew Hernstein out of DePaul University, who looked at some of this back in 2009. And so what he discovered or demonstrated with his research was that we have this innate ability to decode emotions via touch alone. Touch, that's it. Mm. So in a series of studies, what he did is had volunteers attempt to communicate a list of emotions to a blindfolded stranger solely through touch. So what were the uh, emotions, like anger, distrust? Yeah, so I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Okay, I'm, I, I'm getting too, sorry. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. So obviously the participants were somewhat apprehensive, right? Because I think, you know, we can be a bit touch-phobic as a culture or society, and we're not always necessarily used to touching strangers or or friends, right? But so what they discovered is that participants— communicated eight distinct emotions, anger, fear, disgust, love, gratitude, sympathy, happiness, and sadness. Wow. Okay. Some of those are very similar. Right. So anger, fear, disgust, love, gratitude, sympathy, happiness, and sadness with accuracy rates as high as 78%. 78 percent. They're just good guessers. They're just, they're just good at guessing. <laughs> nope. That's all. I mean, there's it's limited <laughs> options here, Mario. So, I mean, it can't be that. I'm just kidding. But could you imagine how you would differentiate between sympathy and sadness? Well. Or gratitude and, you know, what was the other one? I think it was happiness was in there. I can't recall. But, you know, how do you differentiate a touch with those? I don't I don't even know how I would feel. But I think about touch. well, I think about it in terms of you know like um, loss or grief, right? So how I would touch someone when I'm like I am so sorry, like this sense of gosh, here's sympathy. You're going through this as opposed to love, and that it's gonna pull back on that other system, right? Of the the pressure of it and the way and the place, like all of those things matter cuz right i'm not going to smack somebody super hard if i'm like trying to convey you know i mean maybe anger but you know happiness right that like the the pressure the nuances which is why these systems sort of work together to go hey i can recognize the emotional tone which is how too i can feel like someone might be less safe or i'm less comfortable with one person touching me as opposed to Another. I can't help but think about how touch is happening less at this very moment. Yes. And and not just simply because of a pandemic and 
all of that, but simply the distance too with people not co-locating for work, not co-locating for exercise when it comes to team sports. Like there's probably not a lot of basketball happening in the public. You know, maybe in some private teams it's might, it might be happening where there's more trust and and medical care around to confirm everybody's safe or whatever it might be. But, you know, I know Jared here at ChangeLog is, is he's like, I miss playing basketball with my buddies. Yeah. You yeah. Know? What I'm getting at, though, is that is that what do we do then when we can't physically touch? How can we what's a surrogate? Yeah. For touch in a world where we can't literally touch or even in the case of people who are just distant, close friends, but can't touch physically. Yeah. So, I mean, this is where we utilize other textures and other things. I mean, I think about like baby blankets. Like, why do we give gifts? Like, everybody gets inundated with baby blankets, right? When they're having a child, because it's like they're so soft and they're cuddly and they're warm. Like, it's a good sensory experience, right? It's something I want to be nearby. And so, with this, what you're getting at too is the way in which touch is this basis for our emotional health because of the way it impacts our nervous system. There was a researcher some years ago, back in the 50s, I believe it was, um, and his name was Harlow. And what he did this research with monkeys, okay? And so what he did is took infant monkeys from their biological mothers and gave them two inanimate surrogate mothers, so two non-living things, okay? And one was a simple construction of wire and wood, and the other was covered in foam rubber and terry cloth, i.e. one was soft and one was really hard, okay? And the infants were then assigned to one um, of the two conditions. And so then he gave the wire mother a bottle of milk, but the cloth mother had nothing. In both conditions, what he found is that the infant monkeys spent more time with the terry cloth mother than they did with the wire mother, when mm. only the wire mother had food, the babies went to the wire mother to feed and then immediately returned to cling to the cloth surrogate. So we can use these surrogates and that that's needed. Like this is why even, you know, some people look at, um, and I'm not sure exactly all the research relative to this at present, but weighted blankets for um, individuals who struggle with autism, that there's a way in which the pressure of the the weighted blanket feels differently to their nervous system that helps provide calm. So we can reduce our experience of displeasure or pain and provide comfort through surrogate touch. I mean, just like we talked about too, surrogate in the orphanages, that there was another person providing that touch to feel like they weren't all by themselves. So I'm going to start a new startup that's going to be uh, like uh, Grubhub or something like that, where they are dispatched to go give hugs on my behalf to people. <laughs> Maybe that exists. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think of it in moments of grief, even right? Yeah. whenever something really bad happens to friends, loved ones, you know, and you can't physically be there, you know, a basket or, you know, a succulent or a gift card, Mm -hmm. is a good gesture and maybe the gesture is enough but yeah. it's not an it's never enough right it's enough to sort of suffice yeah but nothing replaces a literal embrace in a time of need yeah yeah and i think that this is you know really 
more challenging for many of us, given our current circumstances, and that we all have people that we love and care about that we would like to be able to touch or embrace, that it isn't wise to do so for one reason or another. How familiar are you with emojis? (laughs) Yeah. Do I use them, you mean? Well, I mean, just I suppose maybe the uh, psychology side of them. Like I think of the fist bump emoji, for example. Sure. Or the beers cheers one uh, or a thumbs up or the handshake or the clap. Like these are all touch – like especially the clap. Like you're touching yourself, but there's an auditory thing that happens. Sure. It's a response to congratulate, you know – Mm-hmm. Like we had said, sort of like with the monkeys here, you've got the surrogate. Those act emojis act as surrogates. You got the huggy face sure. emoji, even you know where you maybe you feel so, to some degree hugged whenever you get the huggy emotion. Maybe you don't. I don't know. But the point yeah. is, like these emojis play a role. You know, I don't know the answer to that question, but it prompts ironically another question. And thinking about the way in which you know we've become so sort of reactive around likes or non-likes, or all of these different ways that we get feedback in social media, right? Because they are the way in which we communicate that yeah. that does affect relationships and that it it touches us, right, in a way that, that we may prefer or not prefer. Yeah. So wow. somebody can take a look at that more. <laughs> yeah. And let me know. No, but I want to go back to Harlow, too, as we're having this, because it highlights more of the role of touch in managing emotion. And so what he also did was look at the way in which the infants turned to this inanimate surrogate mother for comfort when they were faced with newer scary situations. When they were in a new environment, the infant monkeys would explore the area run back to the surrogate mother when startled, and then venture out to explore again. Without that surrogate mother, these infant monkeys became paralyzed with fear, huddled in a ball sucking their thumbs. And if any alarming noise toy was placed in the cage, an infant with that surrogate mother again would explore and attack the toy. But without it, the infant would cower in fear. I don't know of a more powerful way to highlight how much we need other people. Yeah. The infant monkey felt safe. It had trust for that surrogate Mm -hmm. mother. It, uh, it associated its safety and emotional safety with that mother. There was clearly some sort of relationship. It felt protected. It didn't feel stressed. It didn't feel, you know, the effects of pain, so to speak, it can even sort of like teeter into the pain management scenario even. Mm-hmm. Or like it would go and attack. It felt courage even. It felt bolstered to go and attack the toy, whereas, you know, yes. without the surrogate, it would cower in fear. Right. And so we're apt to be affected by, you know, not having somebody with us or someone that can be there to walk alongside us, comfort us, et cetera. I mean, mm-hmm. I think about this in the very real experience of childbirth. And I mean, pretty, pretty painful, just a little bit. And did it a couple of times. And um, I can vividly remember my experience because on, I, I was fortunate enough to have both opportunities, one with a painkiller, real, and one 
without it, with just a person and other things. And I vividly remember when I was in active labor, the way in which, you know, my providers would would go and heat up these super big warm blankets and very gently but firmly place them and pressure them on my legs. And it provided so much calm that like I I I remember seeing the trees outside and I remember sort of that moment, but I don't remember the pain. I know I was in pain, but I'm more distant from the pain that was going on in my body at that time. It shows the power of awareness, right? Yeah. What you're focusing on is your focus. Sure, you were in dual focuses. I'm sure you couldn't totally defocus from the pain, mm-hmm. but you had a new focus that changed your awareness and broadened it and allowed you to have an attachment to a different emotion and a different scenario than than just the one. Mm-hmm. So being able to sort of like positively distract yourself was a good thing in that moment. Yeah. And I had help. Like it, I, it literally wasn't something I could have provided to myself at that time. You, yeah, that, that's true too. Because <laughs> you would have to be, you know, amazing, which you are amazing, <laughs> but even more so to be able to heat up the blankets and comfort yourself. <laughs> like how often when you feel sick that you want somebody else to care for you because there's something tender in that, you know, there's, there's something that it just shows and expresses love yeah. to be cared for. Yeah. But so it then really acts as this sort of analgesic, the pain reducer. Yeah. And so what if we're able to reconceptualize or sort of rethink how we view touch in our lives and, and really make it more than binary, either it's good or it's bad, it's right or it's wrong. In what ways does it actually support us in in living life more fully? Like feeling more of that sense of freedom. Like if I need to attack a really loud alarming toy, I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it brings up when I was in the military. When you're in the military, the first thing they do for you is they assign you a buddy. It's traumatic. Yeah. I was young, you know, mm-hmm. 18 going into the military. So a very young mind. Not a lot of life, lived life experience, um, you know, just a lot of things that I was just deficient in, in emotionally, maturity, financially, you know, experientially, many, many ways. And the one way they remedy that is by assigning you a buddy. Like, yeah. You go nowhere alone. If you're alone, you get in trouble. Wow. Yeah. Like you have to have, like, where's your buddy is the common question. Wow. If you're somewhere... Without a buddy, like you go to the bathroom, they may not be in the same stall with you, but they go to the restroom with you. They call it the latrine in the military, but whatever. (laughs) It's not a bathroom. Can I go to the latrine? Well, so, you know, I can't believe I I didn't mention this earlier with everything we've talked about, but what that buddy does, what the, the sense of closeness does is help boost oxytocin, right? That stress reducing hormone. It protects you against the effects of stress. Like a hug from a friend isn't only comforting. It produces serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin, which also helps then boost our immune system to manage getting sick. Mm. I mean, seriously, what an irony. (laughs) Like touch could actually help mitigate stress. And yet we're not really supposed to touch very much. Yeah. Well, there's certainly conflicting sciences. 
in all scenarios, I would say. And maybe for a time being, in this in particular, there was a an extreme reaction. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that there's a necessity for those who have this kind of information around serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin, especially when it comes to touch, to come forth with science that makes sense and research that makes sense to sort of give us different data points. Like you said, with touch, of being able to differentiate between different emotions, it's because it's nuanced. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. more data. Right. You know, when you were in that VR scenario, you didn't just feel better because you felt the floor. It's because you had more data to make a more wise decision. Yeah. And that's what that's why we need more data around the the physicality and the social social ways we operate as a species. We we mm-hmm. can't depart completely from touch. We have to understand its role. Obviously, do it in safe ways that make sense given our current circumstances. I'm not saying against that, but to understand its role and to not diminish it or reduce it completely, that it does play a role, a significant role. Yeah, I mean, I'm I can't speak enough to how thankful that I am that German soccer has returned so I can have some semblance of normal on the weekends. But even watching these guys out on the field, you know, they're still engaging in touch, but doing it in different ways. And and I just think there's so much value in recognizing like, hey, we're on the same team. So, you know, it might be, you know, forearm bump, and different things. And of course, as far as I understand, there's more protocols in place for their safety. But this sense of togetherness is part of what touch is about because it mitigates vulnerability, right? Like as we talked about, of course, I'm going to feel more stressed if I'm I'm all by myself. I got to figure out how to do it. Nobody's with me. Like mm-hmm. on some level, I know I can't get away from the awareness of my vulnerability, no matter what the situation so if I'm to sort of go, you know, wrap this up and go like, why does touch matter? It, it matters because of safety and trust. It matters in terms of how we regulate our emotion and then manage our relationship. It protects against these harmful effects of stress. And it also helps manage pain. Look, fundamentally, physical touch is this foundational element of human development and culture. We need to foster safe social environments wherein we have mediated communication, wherein we still are deliberate about ways in which we can hold on to physical touch in an alternative way. All right, now it's time to head to the comments and let us know what you think about this show. What did you think about the neuroscience of touch? Changelaw.com slash brain science slash 22. This is episode 22. Open up your show notes and click discuss on Changelog News. We'd love to hear from you. And we'd also love for you to join us in Slack. It's totally free. Head to changelog.com slash community. Join us in the Brain Science Slack channel. Talk with me, Marielle, and others from the community. Of course, huge thanks to our partners, Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our beats. And last but not least, if you want to hear more shows like this, subscribe to our master feed to get all of our podcasts. Hit the changelaw.com slash master or go into your podcast app and search for changelaw master. You'll find it. It is one feed to rule them all. Get all of our shows as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks for listening to Brain Science. We'll see you again soon.
Hamir, we, we forgot to talk about something pretty important during the show. So let's put it in the after show. And it's the importance of reciprocation when it comes to touch. How you touch back. Yeah. Tell us about that. I can't believe I left that out. This is was just so striking to me because I work with, you know, couples and people in relationships all the time wherein, you know, touch matters. People tend to have different experiences and expectations when it comes to their partner. And so what a psychologist noted was that while couples who are satisfied with each other do tend to touch more, especially at the beginning of their relationship, the true indicator of a healthy long-term bond is not necessarily how often your partner touches you, but this, but how often they touch you in response to your touch. Therefore, like the stronger the reciprocity between, right, I give, you give, the more likely someone is to report feeling this emotional intimacy and satisfaction with their relationship. So as is often true in relationships, right, satisfaction is as much about what we do for our partner as it is about what we're getting from them. Mm. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It's like a journey, like a dance. You know, it's like, you know, I give, you give. You know, it's like the steps are like on the left foot. You know, my my wife is the right foot. I don't know which foot is foot, but it doesn't matter. The point is, is like we share the role of like my foot goes forward, her foot goes forward. And it's this depth of relationship and this journey together. It really is the togetherness. I almost said on the show, like better together. Like yeah. what is not really better together and in this case, like together is I give, you give touch. And right. that's that's insane how reciprocity plays such a strong. I think it's important to know when uh, you're in these kind of relationships to understand how important it is for you to give back as much as you're given. You know, your response to touch, how important that is. Because it, it seems logical, but not always awareness of its logic and science. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that as we, we talked about in the show, even the way in which you respond, you know, matters. It's sort of like if my husband were to reach out for my hand and I like let him have it, but it was super limp and like, meh, right? Like yeah. I, not involved, right? not interested. It sends signals. Yes, exactly. Right. So it's like, he's pitching to me and I'm like, I could take it or leave it. It's sort of what I'm saying, which doesn't mm -hmm. prompt like, I gotcha. Or like, I feel ya, and now there's more connection. So if you can think of it sort of like resonance, right? Like I want things to come together and sound like they go together. And if I were to make, you know, create some sort of musical song related to that interaction, it would be like, you know, the sound of wah, wah, wah. Like it, right. he did not get what he put out. And that, from wow. a learning perspective, isn't going to prompt further reaching out. It's likely going to prompt the the opposite, right? A recoiling. Like, I might be more timid in my approach towards you because you don't really embrace me back. Well, that's also retraction and isolation. So not building the relationship, not coming together, which is arguably the point Right. A relationship is, <laughs> yes. is to build together, not to retract and isolate. Yeah, exactly. And and I just think that like there's so many things in life and, and the longer that, you know, I've been with my partner, the more I see the the value in that. Like 
you create sort of these experiences and, and everything is enhanced, you know, when we do it together. I mean, we watch our kids sort of, you know, do their thing, be it on the sporting field or in school or in whatever nuanced way. And, and to have the look, the shared exchange of like, yeah, you'd be proud too, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it enhances that positive emotion. And right, we want more of that positive emotion throughout our lives because again, that buffers more of the negative and the stress. Yeah. My highest mountains in my life are only as high as they are because of who I share them with. Yeah. Like if I did it in isolation on my own, like Right. Whatever. You know, but they're 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 triumphs and wins and milestones only to the point they are because I get to enjoy them with my wife and my kids. Mm-hmm. And they understand our journey together and those mountaintops and milestones are so much bigger because we're together. Yep. And you can never get enough. <laughs>